Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and all the queens. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a senior editor at Slate. And me, Imogen Westnights, a contributing writer at Slate. Today, inspired by the recent death of Queen Elizabeth in Imogen's England and the ongoing mess that is the Queen's-based show, House of the Dragon, which you may or may not believe is a mess, but I believe is, we are talking about queens and popular culture, why we love reading and watching stories about them, why those stories are so surprisingly durable, and why in the world, Americans in particular, who created a country at one point that did not have queens in it, (laughs) would like consuming them so much. So as a reader and watcher of historical fiction and historical romance, I cannot get away from queens. They plague me. I wish I could. I wish there were more stories about women who did other stuff besides be born into or marry into uh, royalty and aristocracy. But for some reasons I'll hopefully pick through with Imogen on this show, I find it very easy to buy into a queen show or a queen book or a queen movie thinking of shows like Victoria or The Tudors or Rain, which is like so cheesy, or The Serpent Queen, which I just started watching. I love them. Imogen, why do you want to talk about this? Well, I feel like I want to talk about it because, to be honest, living in England recently, it's been impossible not to think about queens because, I mean, I'm laughing. R.I.P. Yeah, yeah. All, but yeah, right. given, given the recent death of Queen Elizabeth and that kind of intense period of news around that event, I had queen on the brain and so started noticing that there are queens everywhere in popular culture, particularly on the TV. And so, yeah, I got to wondering what is what is the draw there? Why, why do queens hold the public imagination so strongly? How do our fictional representations of queens, like whether they're based on real people or otherwise, relate to what the life of a monarch is actually like? And indeed, do we actually care what the life of a monarch is actually like? So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the appeal of queens. Hey, Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about whether we really need sex-segregated sports. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. So we're back. What is the reason people like to consume the queens? Do you think it's really about loving monarchy? Like wanting to think about someone being in charge of everybody else? Is it just sort of like a narrative trick of the human mind? Do you like to focus on one person and you get overwhelmed with like too many different options of who to consider? I was thinking a lot about how my five-year-old daughter likes princesses a lot, like as much, much as the next kindergartner. But if you ask her what a princess is, she doesn't really know. She just knows that they're special and that people think about them a lot, which is like the ultimate goal (laughs) for her, Um, which to me feels like a really human thing a a little bit, you know, just to be like, uh, like, I want to be the one that everyone thinks about. 
you live in England, as, as we mentioned, and you wrote for Slate about what it was like there after Elizabeth's death. So uh, what do you think about the, the affection for Queen's? Like every journalist, I think, in the UK, I ended up doing loads of writing about the Queen. So I spent that kind of whole weekend just after she died down at Buckingham Palace one way or another, kind of talking to people, getting box pops, like assessing the vibe. And something that really surprised me was the number of young women, by whom I mean people under 25, I guess, who considered the fact that we had a queen to be a sort of win for feminism and that the queen represented like a girl power, girl boss type figure, which, yeah, I think is is pretty misguided. Like the whole notion of a queen... I don't think that can ever really be feminist in the sense of trying to equalize where power lies in society because that's just not what the monarchy is about. Right, it's the opposite. Right, yeah. right. Um, but what, yeah, what do you think about that? Like, uh, do young people have a sense of that or not in the US? Maybe it's more a UK thing. You mean like having an affection for Elizabeth and like the other, the Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton right, figures? Right, yeah. You know, I think they do. I think, and but I also am interested in not just uh, the actual English queens, but also like people's sort of desire to like figuratively crown a queen to pick like which female rapper is the best or like which, you know, like Stan culture is like uh, pretty much made Beyonce, for example, into like the number one singer in the world. The arguments about it are about, uh, you know, it's just kind of fun to have those arguments a little bit. Like, you know, who is better, Beyonce or Nicki Minaj or whatever. But like, it's like, but it also is sort of like predicated on this idea that there are, there is like a tremendous like power and charisma that's like located in one individual and that other people might enjoy debating it. I do think that's a superhuman instinct that we want to have a sense of who's the best and therefore necessarily who's the worst in any field, whether that's music or film, or like who's the most beautiful or who's the most popular kid in high school. I think there's a kind of need to crown metaphorically in a lot of different areas of life. And therefore, when we're presented with literally a queen, that's something that has a kind of automatic appeal, even if, you know, politically, blah, 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 you don't agree. Because, I don't know, we seem to need to, want to, Notice who is better than other people. I also think that um, to be like a little bit more maybe sympathetic to the queens in fiction thing, like I think a lot about how the fertility narrative comes into queen stories quite a bit. We can get back to House of the Dragon in relationship to this because it's so, you know, the House of the Dragon is like a queen versus queen story and like fertility is at the center of their fight, basically. You will lie in this bed soon enough for an error. This discomfort is how we serve the realm. I'd rather serve as a knight and ride to battle in glory. <laughs> we have royal wounds, you and I. The childbed is our battlefield. We must learn to face it with a stiff lip. And it started out with, you know, the death of a woman in childbirth. And there's this idea of like a a queen has sort of like proves herself when she gives birth to male heirs. Maybe this is like too sympathetic to the narrative, but I sometimes have a theory that I feel like people like it because women in hetero relationships, it's not like right on the surface anymore that like your fertility or your lack of it is going to 
like make or break your life, but it's still a little bit there. So I've been watching House of the Dragon with my housemates, both of whom are men, and I have reacted a lot more like, oh God, like looking through my fingers to all the birth stuff than they have, which is maybe like, you know, to be expected. Um, but I was thinking about why, why there is a kind of like appeal to that kind of very raw, gross, up in close, personal, upsetting childbirth stuff. And I wonder if it functions a little bit for, or I feel it does for me when I'm watching it, that I'm, I'm horrified. And yet I can't look away because it's, it's, it's tapping into a fear that's kind of primal in me where I'm like, oh God, you know, I've never given birth and that's, you know, I'm looking and being like, well, this, this could, it could go this badly wrong, even though it's unlikely to, it's kind of like a, it's not, not a wish fulfillment at all. It's kind of the opposite. Like you see the worst thing happening and that's kind of catharsis in a way. Totally. I mean, I think, um, like in a lot of queen stories, it seems like not just house of the dragon, but, uh, you know, and, uh, in shows like Victoria, for example, the reproduction becomes the most human aspect of the queen or something like it's like the queen has a lot of power, but there's also a dichotomy where her body will like rule her to some degree. And that that's sort of like a, a dynamic that uh, I don't know, like if you are a woman who is like able to reproduce, then sometimes you feel like reproduction takes over your life a little bit or like, you know, <laughs> Not to be too like, oh, current events. <laughs> but uh, if you're a woman in the U.S. who lives in a state where you can't access an abortion, then even if you're not in like a marriage where your husband is demanded, you give him a son, <laughs> which is like archaic. Uh, there's a way that um, your ability to get pregnant, no matter how much like personal power you might have otherwise, is kind of like dominating you. It, it I think, is something that levels the playing field a little bit in terms of can we relate to this character maybe slightly more if we see them going through this very biological thing that actually has nothing to do with societal power structures it's just that's life sucks you know we're going to take a break here if you want to hear more from Imogen and myself on another topic, but a related topic, how's that for foreshadowing? Check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist? Today we're talking about whether Hillary Clinton, as an idea, is still feminist. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and of course this one. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... 
That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let's talk about whether it's possible to make queen culture that's subversive or like more interesting or even memorable. (laughs) Some kind of queen culture that's different where the queen is kind of like remarkable or things go differently than than they usually do. What are the limits of this kind of story um, is another way of putting that question. So who are your favorite fictional queens and why do you like them? So I was thinking about this and thinking about stuff I've been watching over the last few years that are about queens. And I was thinking of that Yorgos Lanthimos film, The Favourite, with Olivia Colman as the queen, who's made a bit of a cottage industry of playing queens, because she was also the queen on the crown. And I was thinking about whether that counts as kind of a subversive portrayal of a queen, because it does sort of undercut that whole thing of the beauty of a queen and the sort of regal elegance of the queen, because... In that film, she's this quite slightly grotesque kind of figure. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me! Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! And then there's also the sort of sexuality element that you have in that movie where instead of the queen being subject to the desires of a king or some kind of male person that she's supposed to be getting married to or courting or whatever it's about the power struggle between her and her sort of courtiers and and that the sexuality in that in the film comes is between the women rather than between the queen and a like suitable heir what about you i feel like i've i've talked about that show victoria quite a bit this is the PBS show, uh, Masterpiece Theater show. And uh, I liked that show. This is obviously why I watched it. I believe I've actually recommended it on a past episode of this podcast. Um, Because it has like an actually like hot romance in it, um, which is like sort of uncomplicated by uh, uncomplicated by the usual sort of things that occur on in queen fiction, like, oh, I can't marry him because it's not politically appropriate or like, oh, I have to marry someone who's, like, not who I want, so I'm going to, like, uh, go around on the side and, like, uh, find someone to have sex with who's, like, in my my queen's guard, for example, (laughs) Um, which is what Rhaenyra did on House of the Dragon. In Victoria, people probably know that uh, her consort, Prince Albert, is, like, a kind of, like, an interesting guy who's, like, forward-thinking and, like, kind of wants to, like, make his own mark on the world. Um... And that show just cast two, like, handsome people in it. <laughs> um, it's explained, it's like, a, gives you an explanation for why there would be, like, so many children. They have, like, thousands of children. So I don't know if that's subversive, but it was different to me. I like Queen Charlotte on Bridgerton, who is getting her own prequel series. We just watched the, um, the like, teaser from Netflix for the prequel series. You know, if I grab there, yes, perhaps you could assist me by lifting me up there. Uh, one question. You do not like beasts or trolls when he looks like matters? I do not care what he looks like. What I do not like is not knowing. Now, here, just take hold here. With a lift, I I believe I can make it over the garden wall. You want me to lift you over the wall so you may escape? That is what I said, yes. People will notice you are missing, will they not? I shall worry about that later. Now, if you please, I just need a little help. Come, make haste. I have absolutely no intention of helping you. I'm a lady in distress. You refuse to help a lady in distress? 
I refuse when that lady in distress is trying to go over a wall so that she does not have to marry me. See, this is the thing. It's all like aristocratic people who are like slightly different flavors of aristocracy, like debating over their like minute differences, you know, from a socialist point of view. It's like absolutely ridiculous. But I like the portrayal of Queen Charlotte because she's like a ridiculous figure. Like she's kind of like, I don't know, like she's like petty and whimsical Like, one day she'll say one thing and the other she'll say another. She kind of plays with people's lives a little bit, like, just because she's super bored. But then you find out along the way that part of the thing is that her husband has dementia. And and so she's, like, kind of in mourning a little bit also um, and is, like, a little bit distracting herself. But she's distracting herself by having, like, thousands of uh, small dogs (laughs) and, like, I believe doing doing cocaine. Like, I don't know. I think I remember there being one scene where she does that. I can't wait to find out her backstory. And that and that kind of portrayal of a queen like really does a lot to sort of like highlight the excess, like the, the um, excessive aspects of it and in a funny way. Um, like that show does not shy away from excess. Like it's pretty hilarious that that show is basically like tries to present the Bridgerton family as being like down to earth because because why? I know, right. They live in like the biggest house you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I guess because they're friends with each other. So that makes them like more less aristocratic or something. I don't know. But um, but Queen Charlotte of all of them kind of gets it's like very obvious that it's ridiculous that this woman has like so much money. So I guess my question is, can you uh, can you imagine that there could be kind of like queen a piece of queen culture, whether that be a book or a movie or a TV that would be actually like subversive or interesting or different? Like if that existed, what would it look like to you? So yeah, when I was when I was thinking about this earlier for this episode, thinking about can you have a queen that's actually subversive in fiction or TV or whatever? And I was sort of trying to think through whether because the whole thing about monarchy is that it's it's a sort of rigid it's the status quo. So how how can you have a queen who simultaneously upholds the status quo and yet also manages to subvert it. And I was thinking about, I think, like abdications, intentional ones by queens and whether there have been many of those explored on TV. And I actually couldn't really think of any. And I'd be interested in finding out, like, what, how you could make a piece of art out of that sort of a decision where a woman actually does subvert the structure that she's born, been born into in a meaningful way. But then maybe, you know, I was thinking about it, maybe that's a dead end. Maybe it's like the nice, the woman in the nice dress leaves the big house and then it's like, well, now what? Um, but maybe it could be done. I don't know. What do you think? What's your what, ideal queen like? What do you want to see? Yeah, we were talking before the show about um, the queen of uh, Denmark who has apparently stripped some of her um, grandchildren of titles um, and it's kind of unclear why, but uh, this is the, I believe it's the children of her second child. So they're, they used to be princes and princesses, and now now they're just counts and countesses and like, oh, oh poor children. <laughs> and they're really sad about it, apparently. Um, and I guess, you know, she's, the stated reason is, you know, she wants them to have more of a normal life, which again, I'm like, as a count? I don't know. But the, you know, they're, they're trying to slim down the like number of people that, are like officially part of the monarchy. Um, I bet there's like a money thing behind it. Like I bet there's like something they used to get that they won't get anymore or whatever. Um, I feel like that's like sort of as far as it goes. Like I, we were looking up the 
any queens who voluntarily abdicated. And it doesn't look like there's any that pulled a Edward and like left the throne for a divorcee. <laughs> Was that Edward the No. Th- Edward the Sixth. Oh my God, I'm so bad on the kings. Oh my queens. gosh, aren't you supposed to be one drilled? of the Edwards? Yeah, one of the Edwards. <laughs> I definitely was, and I've just completely forgotten all of them. But yeah, I, we didn't see any. But that might also just be because um, there's fewer, que- you know, when it comes to like full-on queens who were the head of state like the, or the head of the monarchy, it seems like there's just fewer of them. Yeah, maybe it's just a numbers game. But it is kind of kind of strikes you to think like maybe like when when women get to the point of wanting to be queens, like they, what they want is more of the power. Not yeah, less that's of it. a very good point. Yeah, why give it up when there's not much of it going around? Right, like uh, Rhaenyra on House of the Dragon when uh, her lover approaches her and wants her to vanish into the east with him. <laughs> and she's like, absolutely not. I will not be doing that. Which in a way, I don't know. I was like, I was, I was young and stupid once. I would have been away with that man in a heartbeat. But she's probably right in her strange way yeah oh i don't know i well whatever i'm not i think i'm not on her side but i don't even know whose side i'm on there's no one there's no side to be on in that show no there's not there's not much to root for is there before we head out we want to give some recommendations Evagen, what are you loving right now? What am I loving right now? I mean, full disclosure, the main thing I'm loving right now is that I just got a kitten. So that is like the primary focus of my life, like to the exclusion of all my work, all my social life. <laughs> I'm just like, why would I leave the house? It's like a little animal here. Um, but do you have a, is, does it have a name yet? Yeah. So the cat is called Sushi 2 because my housemate had a beloved cat called Sushi when he was young. But I do need some things to be watching and reading, etc. while I'm just lying on the couch with the cat on my lap. And one of those things is that I'm like halfway through the Jeffrey Dahmer show, um, which I'm excited to finish mostly because I just find the whole ethics of the existence of that show so queasy and interesting. Have you watched it? I haven't, despite the fact that apparently it's extremely popular. And um, when things are extremely popular, we try to watch them so that we can figure out if we can write something about them. But I, um, I just, I'm scared to, to be honest. Uh. It's not pleasant viewing, like at all. And, but it's, yeah, I've, I'm excited to finish it because I do just want to dive into all the things that people have been saying about it because I think the kind of balance between victim-centered storytelling as they claim to be doing and then keeping the true crime people in with a certain amount of gore is, is is a really weird it's quite a weird show that they've made and I think ethically it's quite dodgy um what about you oh my gosh I had such a good time last week I went to um I live in a small college town and there's a little main street cinema that the university in the town has basically like rescued and continues to maintain otherwise it probably would have died um and they do a lot of special events. And they did a abortion fundraiser um, for with uh, the movie Dirty Dancing. And um, it was so fun. I went and it, um, you know, I live in Ohio. So our abortion laws are um, predictably terrible right now. So this is, you know, it was raising money for, uh, you know, a abortion fund, basically. Um, and uh, of course, that movie has a little abortion subplot. 
But the I used to watch that movie so much when I was younger, and um, the movie with the theater was like just packed with women. <laughs> Like, it was just, like, a million women <laughs> and maybe, like, a couple guys that I could see. Um, and I went alone, but by the end of it, I was, like, uh, sighing and yelling in concert with, like, all the women around me. <laughs> oh, wow. Because <laughs> I, I don't know. when. Have you seen it recently? Or uh, have you? I actually saw it for the first time, like, a year ago. I'd never seen it. I had no idea it was even about abortion. All I'd seen is the kind of, like, gifts of the big dance moment at the end i had no oh, idea yeah. what yeah great movie it's so great good movie. it really holds up as the ladies and i said to each other at the end <laughs> as <with> tears <laughs> were streaming down our face but it was like oh it just was like uh it's very moving to see uh patrick swayze like and uh and jennifer gray you know patrick swayze's dead and jennifer gray is like 62 i looked it up and they're like in the prime of their lives like absolutely gorgeous like beautiful so the dancing is so fun um to watch and it just like made me want to dance and it made me feel both like old and young at the same time <laughs> and it was so fun and joyful wow to, like, i feel bad other... you you said something so beautiful and joyful and i said the, I, the I, serial I, I, killer show on Dama. netflix <laughs> well but you also had sushi too i do have sushi too <laughs> yeah so I highly recommend. Yes, I think anyone who out there who's trying to f raise money for abortion fund should think about that because it was it was very cathartic and wonderful. Well, that's our show this week. And The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director, Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio, and Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer of audio for Slate. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 